Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Hear Our Voices. And today we have a guest, Miss Amanda is on, and she'll tell you a little bit about what she does for the homeless community um, at large. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> no problem. So happy to have you on our show today. So can you tell them a little bit about what you do and what do you do with the homeless population at large? Absolutely. So uh, my name's Amanda Andiri. I uh, currently reside uh, in Northern Virginia uh, on the land of the Panahawk. Um, and I'm grateful for the caretakers of our land and for our uh, enslaved ancestors who um, helped to build this country uh, through chattel slavery. And I hope to honor both the caretaker, caretakers and my ancestors today. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the CEO of Funders Together to End Homelessness. We are a national network of philanthropy. While we don't do any grant making, we work with funders uh, to strategize their grant making towards racial and housing justice. We believe deeply that we can't end homelessness with, without focusing on housing justice, and I can get a little more into that later, um, but we have a deep commitment not just to racial equity, but what does it mean to be anti-racist, to be pro-Black, to be pro-Indigenous, to be pro-LGBTQ? Uh, we do that with humility, knowing that philanthropy um, has, in their founding, exasperated some of the issues that we see in the nonprofit industrial complex. But we also do that in partnership with other national leaders um, in coalition building and helping philanthropy's voice be a part of the conversation in policy, advocacy, and strategy to prevent and end homelessness. You do a lot of stuff. <laughs> to be honest, you do a whole lot. I don't know how you have the time, but it's not like you're doing a lot for the people in the community of this country, to be honest. Um, could you get more into um, Founders Together? Yeah, so we were started almost, I want to say 12 years ago now. I feel like time is so fuzzy with the pandemic. Like there are years that I, that I always miss in thinking about time. That's but, true. <laughs> but, so, but we, I've been with Funders Together. Actually, it's my six year anniversary today. Uh, oh, so I, I, didn't, you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't start the organization, but our founders uh, were grant makers who were dedicated to thinking about um, how do we start to um, message and um, really infuse housing first as a value and a principle in the conversation around ending homelessness and doing that at the time through permanent supportive housing. So they really challenge other funders and uh, providers to think about housing first, permanent supportive housing and raising resources around that. And what they found was people, that funders from around the country we're also thinking about home, ending homelessness in a different way and wanting to come together to learn from each other, to possibly fund or align uh, their grant making strategy. And uh, didn't wanna start yet another nonprofit, but saw a real need as philanthropy was thinking about homelessness at that time from a systems change point of view. We've since evolved and now think about things like system transformation and exploring what does it mean to think about um, abolition in our work. 
so we have about over 270 members across the country that represent um, large foundations like Gates and Hilton, small family foundations, um, uh, what I would call like a new wave of philanthropy where you have folks like uh, Balmer and Chan Zuckerberg that are coming together in these like limited uh, liability corporations and doing a mix of funding uh, and policy and strategy and influencing in that realm. Uh, we are a, a, a small but mighty team. We're growing on staff a little bit, but we have about 10 folks uh, who work daily to support not only our members, but the movement to end homelessness in their work and in a few coalitions that we've helped to start and be a backbone to, including the National Coalition for Housing Justice and the National Racial Equity Working Group. Our board are committed leaders in philanthropy who have served uh, as foundation leaders or former foundation leaders who represent, I like we have really worked hard to have them represent um, people of color, people with lived expertise, uh, and they're really some of the greatest people I know in this work and really dedicated to preventing and ending homelessness as well, including my incredible staff. So that's a little bit about Funders Together. A lot of our work is centered around um, learning together, um, doing work in region regional networks together. We do a lot of work in what we call communities of practices where we take funders uh, on a two-year learning to action journey whether that's around racial equity, whether that's around health systems, whether that's around um, aligning employment and housing systems. And uh, a lot of our work is really to mobilize philanthropy, to push philanthropy, to think about uh, how they can uh, reimagine, dismantle uh, their own practices towards housing and racial justice. Got it. I have a question. You said they take like a two-year process. How does like, do you pick these people? Do the people come to you say we need this training in this area? How does that, how do you go about doing that? When you're picking out these people and how do they know about this, the organization before, you know, beforehand? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, it's a little mix of both. You know, we have some funders who come to us and say, we're starting to think about housing and homelessness as a strategy. Will you help us? And then we plug them into the right spaces. We sometimes approach funders in certain areas and say, we hear you're thinking, or you're starting to invest in housing and homelessness. You should come be a part of our work and learn. But, you know, we, we are on our second cohort of a community of practices, what we call them, called Foundations for Racial Equity. And I've been pleasantly surprised that each time we open up that application, we have an abundance of foundations who say, you know, me, I wanna stretch myself on my racial equity journey. I wanna learn uh, deeper about anti-Black racism and how that contributes to homelessness, how Native erasure contributes to homelessness. So we don't have to do a lot of like, um, pushing and prodding to get them to, to say yes to learning. I think where philanthropy always needs more work is when does the learning stop? When do we start to operationalize? When we start to move towards action? Um, and that's where we kind of hold them accountable to, to that work uh, as funders together um, and be a reflection for them. 
Got it. That sounds so cool. I have a a question about this. Do they get people? Do they get to um be with people who are who's once homes before, or is it mostly people who have never experienced the um the life of homelessness? And then what what kind of homelessness do you do? Do you do young people? Do you do street homeless? Do you do family homelessness? Because people think homelessness is homeless, but it does take on a different journey depending on what kind of homelessness you have um been in before. It's a great question. So we focus on all types of homelessness and housing insecurity. We have funders who will are particularly focused on family homelessness, they're focused on unsheltered homelessness. We have a group of funders who have been working on ending youth homelessness specifically and have um, stuck together in their learning to action journey. Uh, but you know, we believe obviously every population is important uh, and and particularly in populations where disproportionately people of color are impacted, which is mostly every population. We, we um, try to get folks to think about not only populations, but about the racial disparities within those populations. We, you know, lately we've been talking to more funders who are looking at the, uh, the aging population of people experiencing homelessness and and honestly, what that means in, in terms of like decades of disinvestment um, or lack of political will, now we have this aging population of homelessness, but we focus on all types of, of homelessness and housing insecurity. I think most times we do forget about the aging population. And I'm not gonna lie to you, I do. I don't even think about them and it's kind of sad to say that, but it's because like they're almost forgotten because it's like in my eyes when I see homelessness I don't really see I feel like old people and I know they're there because obviously it is there you know what I'm saying but we just kind of think about mostly young people and people with families and usually like a young, younger person or in their 30s or 40s you know I don't think about a 70 year old being homeless it just is I feel like it shouldn't be and a lot of time it's like veterans too who are who been here for this country and there you just they're on the street homeless because you, you're not helping them. And it's kind of sad to think about it that way, you know? Yeah, I think you know your what you see or your perception, your experience is your reality. I actually, when I did direct service work, I saw more people who were older or aging. And we know that like when when you live uh, a life of housing insecurity, especially unsheltered you age faster. So I've been thinking a lot about the people I met when we ran a hypothermia shelter, like, were they really that age, right? They looked older to me, but maybe they were a lot younger, which is something I think is important to talk about. Uh, so I, and then, you know, for years, there's been researchers who've been, who are working in the field talking about like this, um, that there'll be a certain population who ages, who started out in their housing insecurity young um, and might end up end their lives um, homeless and what that means, you know, what how we reflect back on that as a country. Uh, and then, you know, I know other people who, who because they walk down certain streets only see like family homelessness and their eyes are drawn to young people. Uh, I worked a lot in uh, the suburbs of DC and homelessness here was hidden even though it was mostly young children. So I think it's really important to talk about like, like 
who we think is homeless and what do we see, I always also remind people who you see is just the tip of the iceberg of who is actually experiencing housing insecurity. That is so true. I is that is such a fact. People, I think, especially I say families in a way. I feel like in New York City, I don't personally see families homeless. Um, probably they are like probably on a train. I don't even realize they're homeless or nothing like that. But I feel like, especially people who are in shelter, and there's so much shelters in New York City because we have so much a big, high population. I call them the invisible people. Like I know somebody has like I think a YouTube channel or something like that called Invisible yeah. Invisible People. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had a, a huge following and it's done Mark Horvath, just a plug, Invisible People, YouTube, follow them on uh, Twitter. Yeah. They do incredible work in sharing the stories of people experiencing homelessness and show the diversity to your point. Um, but you're so right. It is the invisible people. I think um, what I hear most from people with lived expertise and experience they always talk about the invisible nature of homelessness, how uh, sometimes people don't even see them, right? And so that's so important for us to continue to lift up. I think in my, I feel like I see invisible people two ways because I was in the shelter with my daughter, right? Mm -hmm. And because I look so normal, people at work would never know I was homeless unless I told them. And this girl, one day she was talking and she said something and I was like, hold up. I took it to the side, I was like, are you in the shelter? She said, yeah, how did you know? Because I mean, she has a daughter also. And she told me she was in the shelter when she confirmed, I was like, it makes sense. Cause she says a couple of things that only a person in the shelter would have said what she said. So I, I identified with that. But if you didn't go to the shelter, you would have never known that. But people usually don't see, like, because you don't see that we are dirty or with a certain way, you don't see that we are homeless because we don't tell you that, you know? So we're yeah. invisible, but we're in society, but we're really not a fully part of we are homeless, right? But when I think of other invisible people, it's also it's like they're on the street because they're dirty or even if they're just there asking for money, you just kind of ignore them. And those are also the invisible people. So I think it's, it could be in two situations of invisibility, but we're all people who are still homeless under the you know same kind of umbrella in a way. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. So what kind of um, things are out there right now that people can get into to kind of help with like getting more housing out there or getting passing a certain bill? What can they do to kind of help? Because people might say, oh, I want to help with these things. But until honestly, people found me and got me into this kind of this world of homelessness, I wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't know what to do per se. What can they do to kind of help push the train along to get certain things changed in America? Wow, that's a deep question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think if, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you uh, are not really engaged in your community, but you know homelessness is a problem, I think that it's really important to start communicating with your local leaders, whether that's your mayor, your city council, your board of supervisors, uh, and express to them that you want a community that has diverse housing options for everyone, that uh, affordable housing is a goal for your community because you want people to be able to live um, and have joy where they work and be in community. I think so often people 
recognize homelessness as a problem, want to solve it, but don't know how to engage with their political leadership to say, uh, we want to solve it, not just move it away. And so I know for folks like understanding who's homeless, uh, who's experiencing homelessness, who's who's unhoused is is really important. Doing in that, that in a way that doesn't feel intrusive, though, I think is really important. So I think that's always the first step I offer to people is to to not have people be invisible, to understand the diversity of people who experience homelessness and housing insecurity, and then have real conversations with your community leaders about what does it mean to have a community that has housing available for everyone. I, I believe if you're listening to this podcast and you're in the work, right, with uh, in the movement, whether that's someone with lived experience or lived expertise, whether you're working for a provider or an organization that does capacity or policy, uh, we're such a critical, pivotal moment in our, in our work uh, around ending homelessness and housing insecurity. We know that uh, on the table in Congress is a bill called Build Back Better uh, that is basically the infrastructure bill for human services and housing is constantly in threat to be taken away from that bill. Um, the investment in housing in, in many of the relief and infrastructure bills over the last two years could change the course on ending homelessness and housing insecurity, but we don't have the political will in Congress and even quite frankly in the White House right now to say like this is a top priority and not just more resources for housing, but thinking about housing as a fundamental human right, as a basic need, um, thinking about housing as uh, guaranteed and thinking about how we change our resources to reflect those, to, to prioritize those who are most marginalized by housing insecurity um, and being specific about naming that as Black, uh, Native American, and people of color. And so if you're inclined to talk to your congressperson, your senators, and also share your priorities for housing um, in any resources that are allocated, I think that is super important to do. So those are just some of the things that, um, that we have been thinking about in terms of ending homelessness and housing insecurity in our country. I know there's a lot of local stuff that probably is happening in community, but I do think there's this all out push uh, to focus on making sure we have the right resources in Build Back Better or whatever comes out of the negotiations that are happening right now. I think also we need to work, yes, we need to work locally and locally, locally is a very a big thing because I feel like in general, when they get the certain vouchers or they get certain things, what, one thing I hate about it is that they put people in shelters in areas that was not honestly that safe and not that great. So you come out of one problem, you kind of end up in another problem <laughs> and you do want to stay in housing, but where you are is not the greatest environment um, for you, your, your state of mind. Um, it can make you, if you have already had anxiety, it can make it worse. If you already had stress, it's going to make it worse. If you already have all the high blood pressure, it's going to make it worse by living in an environment that's not safe or good for you and your kids. And, this, and the environment your kids grow up in is going to be affecting what's going to happen to you and your kids, you know, in the long run. Um, but I think when we, the government from the higher ups are doing, doing their part 
it's going to scatter down to the rest of the states, I would hope, even though they have every state have their own rules, you know, but eventually if it starts from the top, it's supposed to kind of trickle down to make the lives of the people who are voting, who are paying their taxes, you know, life better in America. Um, and people would think that sometimes people just putting the taxes thing out there when you're in shelter when you work the money's still you know that's your tax money still getting taken away from you you have right. no home but you're still paying taxes because it's coming out of your check every week every two weeks whatever i just gotta put it out there i'm sorry that sounds kind of you know oh. but, um, well i think you bring up a really important point that uh explains why funders together to end homelessness is focused on housing justice so for us housing justice um, means that we acknowledge that the, there is a, a racialized history that has contributed to housing insecurity and homelessness in our country, right? And that um, that is rooted in anti-Black racism and Native erasure. And much of our work, even though the intent is good, the impact means that people don't have choice in not only where they live, but how they live. So we, we need to think about uprooting the idea that proximity to whiteness is success. We need to acknowledge that it's not just about investment in communities, but historic disinvestment that has allowed communities not to be a place of safety or even feel like community. And so we can't end homelessness by just one, you know, building more housing or moving someone to the next most, most affordable place we have to think about like one, centering people and asking them, where do you want to live? How do you want to live? What's gonna make your community feel safe? And not aligning those values to white dominant culture. And think about investing in communities in a way that says we trust you um, and we want you to make decisions with the resources you have. A lot of times when we talk about things like revitalization or redevelopment, it's done in a way that um, pits people against each other and doesn't realize like that we should be first and foremost talking about the people who are in those community and what they want. Like not every revitalization is about Whole Foods or Target, no dis to right. them, right? <laughs> but it's, it's like, when you listen to like, what's gonna make a community feel safe. And it, it's not also about just going to the next neighborhood with the best schools, um, it's really thinking about like, how do we invest in the things that are here right now to make them um, right. best for the people here? So I think you bring up such an important point about uh, just because your homelessness ends, doesn't mean your housing insecurity ends, doesn't mean that you don't have concerns about safety and community. And I, I think that's so important. Yeah, it's, it's, get, it's very, I would never think I would get to this point in my life that I would have this problem because I grew up, I don't know if you know anything about New York. I grew up in Queens. Queens is like, out of all the boroughs, I feel like it has probably the most houses, the least amount of buildings compared to like Manhattan and Brooklyn and the Bronx. And probably, I don't know that much about Staten Island. People forget about it because it's just like, it's its own world and by itself. And then I grew up in a quiet neighborhood in the house and then I ended up in a shelter. And then now I'm end up in NYCHA in Brooklyn. And I love Brooklyn. That's one thing. I love Brooklyn. But where I'm at in Brooklyn is just not the ideal place I think I would be in my life. Like, I would never think this would be, I'm walking outside of my apartment. I think, oh, I might get shot today. Maybe that bullet won't hit me. <laughs> like, these are the things you want to have 
um, in your life or your child's life. I have a 60 year old. I do foster care. Um, I don't want this to be my destiny. I know it's not going to be, but right now that's where I'm at. And yeah. it just, I already had anxiety from before. And then I have anxiety. You just never know what's going to happen. You shouldn't have anxiety when you put it in your head. You, yeah. you, you're waking up and people acting crazy. It's just not the environment you, you personally want. And in the shelter, people were going crazy too. People were always yelling. Cops was always there. I had to go to med detectives every single day just to get in the building because the people were violent. Um, mm. It was it was a lot. Yeah. But I'm you know here now is I'm not in the shelter anymore. I'm you know obviously, <laughs> and I just want to be able to help my community and be able to help people have a better life. You know, and and there's organizations like yours that are out here really making a difference. And the thing about it, I learned in this this um, homeless atmosphere, I don't know what to really call it, but um, that everything works so slow. I never, I never knew mm. how slow anything could get pushed ahead. I, to me, I think everything is like, you got the power to do it, it goes through, it's good. I learned about how the bill came a law and when I was younger, I just thought the bill became a law much faster than it, it was the <laughs> stuff you heard on TV. Cause I think it's conjunction, you know that thing from back in the day, I did like the right, 90s. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm like, when you really into this work, you're like, before you get in, you're like, this should go fast. You know, people have the money, it should get pushed along. But when you're actually in it, you're like, no, this goes really slow. People do these things and these, they make all these, they make it's like one or two or three things that they want. And because not everybody wants to do it a certain way, you have to take out certain things, add in certain things. And by the time it gets to the end, you get kind of what you want, but it takes about 10 years to get there. And you're like, this is half of my life. A, this, a ten, 10 years is like a 10 year old child. If you think about it in numbers of a person, uh-huh. that's a long time. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what to do, but it's like, thank you for your, like your organization really helping out the people because <laughs> we definitely need it, you know? Well, it's, I just want to thank you for sharing your truth. And I just want to just acknowledge that I see you and I hear you. And, um, you know, I I think we are in community together to do this work together. I I also just want to acknowledge something that you brought up that's so important that we don't talk about enough. Many times people like hear stuff like, oh, you know, I talked to someone who is homeless and like they didn't want to go into the shelter. Like they denied service. And we use these terms like service resistant. And if anything in this pandemic, what I hope we take away and learn is like congregate shelters and the and the, the, the way that shelter, a lot of shelters are run, not every shelters are run, are not good environments for folks, right? And right. so there's there's nothing, there's a, people don't deny housing. What they're saying is like, the choice you're giving me is not really a choice. Exactly. Or, you know, the choice that you're giving me is not, good for my mental health. Um, And we don't talk about that enough. I think there's this idea that folks should just be happy with whatever you give them because they don't have what they need right now. And that Mm -hmm. that's not seeing someone's humanity. It's not giving someone like what they actually need. And so I, I thank you for sharing the hard truth and experience about your time in shelter. And it's not to knock shelter providers or like they're, most of them are doing the best that they can with what they have, but we have to reimagine um, how we think about crisis intervention and, and also start to go upstream. Like the, the, just, the justice part of the work is to prevent people from falling into homelessness 
uh, first, right? Like that's the goal (laughs) is that no one should ever experience the trauma of housing insecurity and homelessness. And so it's not enough to end it. We have to prevent it and, and help think about uh, just reimagine in new ways with folks like you who have experiences that I don't, that are so critical to the policy work, to the funding field, and just to our everyday lives to like get to real solutions. So thank you for sharing. No problem. No problem. Um, If somebody wants to join Fund Us Together, where would they have to go? Is there a website they can go on? You can see it right now so people can get out there and really be able to join in and to, to be able to change the world, you know? Oh, yeah. So, you know, our membership is only open to private philanthropy. So folks who are working in foundations, United Ways, doing grant making. Um, But we, uh, so our website is funderstogether.org. We have incredible resources there around grant making strategy, around racial equity. So if you're listening and there's funders in your community that you think, oh, they need to be a part of something bigger, it'd be great for them to join. If you are a funder, we'd love for you to join. But if you're doing this work and just want to like, you know, peruse our resources, um, if you would like us to come speak in your community or your organization, we do a lot of uh, talking about our own racial equity journey, talking about what that that means for the movement and homelessness. Uh, So we are are in community with everyone in in this work together. Definitely. It don't take one person, it takes basically at this point the world to kind of, you know, push change along and help the communities that we are in. And everybody just want to be housed. Everybody just want to be happy. Everybody wants to be safe. And to do that, we need to work as a team to make that possible for everyone, all ages, all colors, all religions. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we're all people, human, and we all just want to have a better life for our us and our family, you know? So yeah, definitely. So do you have any last words for the people? Uh, I would just say, uh, think about justice, think about liberation, think about how we center people with lived expertise and experience, think about how we get to the humanity of our work. Uh, and, and, and like we started with see people, see people first. And I, I really thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for being here. So guys, thank you for listening to Hear Our Voices. Um, I know we haven't been back in a while, but we're going to soon be coming out every week on a Wednesday, as you know. Look for us on Instagram. We're fully active on Twitter all the time. We have a Facebook, but right now it's private. So that's going to be linked in the bio soon. And if you also want to see my Instagram and things like that, keep up on what I'm doing. This is your host, Kay Did, as usual. And thanks for coming and listening to our podcast. See you next week.